this is Rina Ba-Eliyahu, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Rav Yehuda Hakohen. That's right. Before we begin, I'd like to remind listeners that if you like what we do here at the Vision Movement and at Vision Magazine, you can support our work by going to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and clicking the donate button on the menu bar up top. Please keep in mind that we are 100% listener funded and we don't want that to change. So your support is important and very much appreciated. And if you're currently unable to contribute to our work financially, doing something as simple as sharing episodes of this podcast with your friends or leaving a positive review can be incredibly helpful in helping us to expand our reach. So now in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Rav Yehuda on a topic that gets touched upon a lot at the Vision Movement, but I think really needs to be clearly defined, Hebrew universalism. I've been wanting to have this discussion for a really long time and really dive deep into what it means. Basically, I want this episode to be Hebrew universalism for dummies. So let's really break it down. Sounds good. First off, what do you mean when you say Hebrew universalism? What is Hebrew universalism? Like, how do you define it? Uh, When I say Hebrew universalism, I'm really referring to the stage of Jewish liberation that comes after Zionism. Meaning, from the perspective of Jewish history, Zionism was an incredibly successful revolutionary movement that radically changed the material situation of our people, right? The situation of the Jewish people today is radically different from what it was 150 years ago, and it's largely radically different as a result of Zionism. Agreed. Now, we can say that Zionism failed to accomplish many of its stated goals, like normalizing the Jewish people or ending anti-Semitism, but it did accomplish many of our people's deeper aspirations, uh, stretching back thousands of years, like the ingathering of Jewish exiles home from across the world, Uh, the revival of the Hebrew language to everyday use, the reestablishment of political independence, you know? These were all near impossible feats that we should be careful not to take for granted today. Like, these, these are the accomplishments of Zionism, but we can also see that Zionism is over. Zionism accomplished everything that it could possibly accomplish. Uh, It also had many flaws, and I think the Jewish people are ready for something new. So, What would you say the main difference between Hebrew universalism and Zionism is? Well, I think the main difference is that Zionism is a very particularist Jewish nationalist movement that is focused on the material well-being of the Jewish people, of making us safe, making us secure, making sure we have a land, we can defend ourselves, we have a robust economy. You know, Zionism is focused on the material well-being of the Jewish people, whereas I think Hebrew universalism um, really requires Zionism as like a prerequisite stage, meaning we need to be in our land, we need to be secure, we need to be somewhat strong. But then the question is, what do we do with all that now that we're back on the world stage, now that we've come back to life, now that we're solid again and no longer existing in gas form like we did for 2000 years of exile, how are we going to impact the world? Okay, so you're saying that the stage of Zionism is finished and now we're moving on to the stage of Hebrew universalism. I'm saying we should be. I'm I'm saying that part of 
Israeli society's problem is that we haven't really made that transition. I'd say even the broader Jewish world, we haven't yet made that transition beyond Zionism because we haven't yet defined what comes next. Right, and that encompasses Hebrew universalism. Or that should be Hebrew universalism. So I want to ask, why not Zionism? Why not universalist Zionism? Zionism was, a hundred years ago, we can say that Zionism was a movement that aspired to very real social and political change. And therefore, it was a movement that really inspired and galvanized a lot of revolutionary-minded young Jews to go and, and really commit themselves to accomplishing Zionism's goals. Today, and really for the last half century, at least, Zionism has not been uh, has not been a movement that aspires to any kind of social or political change. Zionism has become a movement of really defending a status quo, mm -hmm. of trying to like defend the accomplishments of Zionism, but no longer looking to accomplish something new. And we could even argue that Zionism, uh, because of its dialectical relationship with the Haskalah, with the Jewish Enlightenment movement, even though Zionism came into the world as a rejection of the Haskalah's rebranding of Jewish identity from one of a people to just merely a religion, um, you know, Zionism pushed back against that. Uh, I think that Zionism also carries within it uh, a little bit of the assimilationist impulse of the Haskalah. And what we see in Israeli society is once Zionism accomplishes its revolutionary role, it has a tendency to backslide towards just trying to be normal, to try and become a, what we call in Hebrew an am kecholamim, like a nation like other nations, like just another flag of the UN, and avoid the features of our identity that actually make us unique, that make us special, that make us different from other peoples. Okay, great. So I guess now we can dive deeper into defining Hebrew universalism and maybe discussing about the origins. Where does it come from? Where did, where did it start? Well, well, first I would, I, I guess first we should define it. I would say that there is an internal and external component to Hebrew universalism. You know, the external component is really trying to figure out what is the role of the Jewish people on the world stage today. Now that we're a nation again, like I said, now that we're in solid form again, uh, now that we have our own state, our own army, our own economy, our own seat at the table, so to speak, how do we want to influence the rest of the world? What kind of world do we want to see? And how can we use the conditions created by Zionism success to implement our vision for what the world should look like? But internally, I think Hebrew universalism uh, really needs to solve the friction between the forces of Jewish particularism and the forces of Western liberalism within Israeli society. Meaning if we look at almost every social and political issue in Israeli society, uh, almost every issue comes down to a friction between these values, the values of Jewish particularism or Jewish nationalism and the values of Western liberalism. And if we do nothing, meaning if we just let this conflict play out, we just let the contradictions antagonize and let this friction kind of bring us to its natural conclusion, 
I think what will happen is the Jewish particularism camp will ultimately win out, uh, mostly because of the demographic trajectory of the country. Meaning if we want if we want Israel to be a democratic society, and when I say democratic, I mean um, I mean that we have in place a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under. Um, if that's how we see democracy and we see the demographic trajectory of Israeli society, that um, the Haredim are the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. Um, the national religious are kind of tied with Palestinians for second place. Um, after that would be Mizrahi Jews. I, I think that we see that uh, the forces of Jewish particularism are going to win. And I think that it's important for us to realize that even though it might not be correct for the forces of Western liberalism to dominate Israeli society in the way that they currently do and try to impose their values and their worldview as the glue that's meant to uh, unite all the tribes of Israel, all the different sectors of Israeli society. Um, and part of how they do this is through defining democracy, not as a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under, but rather as a set of values, meaning democracy is often promoted by Israel's ruling class as, you know, Western values, like to be a nation like Germany, to be a nation like the United States, that we should be like them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that's all problematic and we need to really become a, a much more democratic society and to a certain extent, I'm on the side of Jewish particularism, but I also think that there's a value to the forces of liberalism in our society. And what we need to do to square the circle is really discover Hebrew universalism, which I think we can look at as finding real uh, universalist values and solutions and ultimately policies based on deep Jewish identity, meaning look into our own sources, look into our own history, look into our own values for solutions to a lot of the challenges plaguing Israeli society and to actually try to solve that friction. Meaning if we can produce uh, through Hebrew universalism, if we could produce answers and solutions to many of the challenges of Israeli society that are actually more universalist than the solutions of Western liberalism and the models of Western liberalism, but also coming from a deeply Jewish place, I think that would actually satisfy both forces within Israeli society and allow us to move forward together instead of just being in opposition to each other, which would ultimately just lead to the forces of Jewish particularism winning. Okay, so let's dive deeper into, I want to know the differences between Western liberalism and Hebrew universalism or the difference between Western universalism and Hebrew universalism. Because when I hear universalism, I think making everything kind of one size fits all, something that works for everyone, fits for everyone, and tries also to make everyone into like a uniformed unit. So I want to know the difference between those two um, universalist approaches or ideologies and how do we kind of shift our current society in Israel and also bring the Jewish diaspora into that way of thinking? How do we go from one to the other? Well, well I think you, to a certain extent, answered your own question. I think that, uh, you know, the problem with Western universalism is that it demands uniformity. Meaning I grew up in New York City, 
and uh, not so much in the Jewish community. I, I grew up with like everybody, you know, in New York. So I had a lot of black friends, Irish friends, Italian friends, Albanian friends, Puerto Rican friends, you know, Greek friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we were all, you know, we were all living in what we thought to be like multicultural New York, where people's superficial differences, you know, like accents, cuisine, et cetera, are celebrated. But at the same time, we're all meant to conform to an American ideal of what life is about, what the goals of life are, that we're all meant to be successful in the capitalist system. Like that's the goal of life, to, to make the most money, have the biggest house, the fastest car, um, and that's how success is defined. And if somebody has, uh, if somebody's coming from a background, if somebody's coming from a society that prioritizes other values, right? Not the values of American capitalism, but other values, that person is forced to either conform to the values of American capitalism and American liberalism, or they're outsiders, meaning they're not, they don't really belong. They don't really become Americans. So that's like Western, that's Western universalism, that everybody has to conform to a way of seeing the world and a certain model of success and a certain prioritization of values. What I think Hebrew universalism should aspire towards both internally and externally, both within the state of Israel and in terms of Israel's message to the rest of humanity, is trying to create space for everyone to really be themselves, to recognize that everybody is representing a unique expression of truth and that that expression of truth should really be given space to express itself, to, to shine. You know, we, we can look at the world, we can look at humanity as a, an orchestra, like every nation, every culture, every ism is like an instrument in the orchestra. Like you have the flute, the clarinet, the saxophone, the piano, the violin, and all of these instruments right now, the world as it exists, it's a cacophony. Like every instrument wants to express itself as loud as possible, often at the expense of the other instruments. The world that I think our prophets and sages wanted to see, and the world towards which Israel is tasked with leading humanity, is a world that's a symphony, where all of the instruments are actually fully expressing themselves, but in harmony with one another and in recognition that the other doesn't have to become like me, the other has value as well. Amazing, that goes really against what we see today in terms of Western liberalism. I feel like everyone's just trying to become the same and not really accept each other's differences. It's super surface level acceptance, but underneath basically what you said, there's the assumption that everyone should be the same. And we saw it very clearly with uh, the U.S. war in Iraq. When uh, George W. Bush invaded Iraq, it, the assumption was that once the Americans come in and remove this dictator, Saddam Hussein, from power, then all of the Iraqis will magically turn into American consumers. And they'll all just be interested in eating McDonald's and watching NBA basketball and sending their kids to great universities so they can make lots of money. And that's not what happened because the people of Iraq and, and they're different, you know, they're different groups, obviously, that ended up in competition with one another. But you could see that there were different 
values, different ways of seeing the world, different understandings of what it means to be a human being and, and what we're doing here. And I think what we ultimately need is a, a form of universalism that really makes space. Obviously, there are things that uh, we don't think are okay. There, there are obviously lines, there are obviously boundaries. Like you can't say, oh, well, this, you know, this civilization uh, values child sacrifice. So let's just like allow child sacrifice, you know, that, that, that that's okay. But you the know. seven Noahide laws being, or the Ten Commandments, like that being the sort of base? I think the seven Noahide laws are a good baseline, right? A good yeah. moral baseline. And every people and every culture should be able to kind of build its own civilization according to its own identity, but, you know, within the framework of the seven Noahide laws. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that kind of brings me to wanting to understand the origins mm -hmm. of Hebrew universalism. Like, who did it start with? Are we talking Abraham? Are we talking Noah? Are we, who, like, where do we first see the... Uh, I think it's important we make a distinction between Hebrew universalism as a stage of Jewish liberation after Zionism and the ancient Hebrew universalist ideal for humanity. I get the sense you're conflating them a little bit. Okay. But in terms of the ancient Hebrew universalist vision, I'd say we see it in the generations between Noah and Abraham. Okay. Meaning that you see that after the flood, right? We're saying that Noah is now the father of humanity. And when the Torah tells us about his descendants or the descendants of his sons, his three sons, it talks about them kind of shifting from being families with unique cultures in their lands. Like it's a, it says Lashonatam, like there are different words for language. Uh, one is a Lashon, right? And the other is a Safa. These words also have other meanings, like Lashon means tongue and Safan means lip. So Lashon is like the deeper, when we say Lashon, when, we use, when the Torah is using the word Lashon for language, it also means culture. So we're saying these are families with unique cultures in their lands. Um, and suddenly they become nations, right? So we see a transition in the generations between Noah and Avraham where families are actually turning into nations. And the big difference there, meaning the, the, the big transition there we should be, we should be focusing on is what, what's the difference between a, a family and a nation? Families can have relationships with each other, fluid relationships. You know, two families can become one family uh, through marriage or alliances or, or whatever. Whereas nations usually have very hard borders between them. You know, when you're organizing as a nation or seeing yourself as a nation, everyone else is the other. Everyone else is an outsider. Everyone else is a potential enemy. But if you're a family and they're a family, you're not right away psychologically defining them as a potential enemy, as an other, as the outsider. They're somebody who could actually become you or they can become partners, etc. And then later, when you see Avraham step onto the scene, and the creator speaks to him, he's told that he's going to be turned into a great nation, right? Like Avraham is going to become a great nation and that all the families of the world will be blessed through him. Meaning that one of the missions of Avraham is to return the nations of the world back into families. And I think that's where we first see this concept of universalism. But the irony here is that in order for Israel to um, in order for Israel to succeed at promoting universalism, we first need to be a nation ourselves. 
That's the irony here. Um, but we also see, you know, for example, um, Rav Kook, uh, Rav Avram Yitzhak Akoin Kook, uh, who was the first chief rabbi of Palestine uh, when we began to come back en masse. He uh, has an essay in Orota Triah, it's the 18th essay in Orota Triah, where the Rav explains that when the Jewish people come back to life in our land, three forces begin to emerge, these three camps. He calls them Hauma, Kodesh, and Enoshut, meaning the nationalist camp, the um, holy camp, and the universalist camp, okay? And when he's writing this, basically the nationalist camp were the Zionists, uh, from, you know, labor Zionism and cultural Zionism, really all the way to revisionist Zionism. And the Kodesh were the Haredim, right? The holy camp were the Haredim. And the Enoshut camp, the universalist camp, were the Jewish Marxists, uh, Brit Shalom, uh, people like Martin Buber, and the Rav says that each of these forces needs to develop independently, meaning that you can't put them together too early. In fact, uh, he, he says that if you put them together too early, they'll water each other down, right? Like, and we saw that actually with something called religious Zionism. There was an attempt uh, in the Rav's lifetime, in Rav Kook's lifetime, to merge the Kodesh with Hauma the religious camp with the nationalist camp and create what was called religious Zionism. But religious Zionism from that time, from the time it began until really the 1960s, was less religious, like less uh, Torah observant than the Haredim and less nationalist than even the labor Zionists. Meaning that if you look at the Six Day War, when the cabinet was deciding whether or not to liberate Jerusalem from Jordan, liberate the old city of Jerusalem. The labor Zionists were agitating towards freeing Jerusalem, while the religious Zionist ministers were actually arguing against. Right? But then after that war, and I, I would even argue as a result of that war, this might be as a result of the metaphysical impact of the Jewish people's return to Jerusalem in 1967, a new kind of what's called religious Zionism burst onto the scene, although I'm not sure I would call it religious Zionism, maybe it's better to call it national religious, but there was this new, this new national religious force that kind of entered Israeli society, represented by the students of Rav Kook, uh, Gush Munim, and this is a camp I belong to. Uh, this is a camp that's clearly more nationalist than even Likud, while also arguably more Torah observant than the Haredi community. Okay, so it's like the full expression of both. And Rav Cook argues that ultimately the goal is to have a super camp, what he calls Kodesh Kodeshim, that's the full expression of all three, the full expression of Jewish national consciousness, Torah, and universalism. So right now we're at a stage in Israel's development where the national and religious camps have successfully united, synthesized, in a way that, that there's a camp that expresses that fully expresses both values. And even those in Israeli society who only express really one of those values, for the most part, are like respectful and warm towards the other in a way that wasn't the case maybe a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. But we're still missing the third force. We're still missing the universalism. And I think that is really the key here. Uh, we need to 
be able to integrate universalism in its fullness, not like some token universalism to kind of like blunt the edges of the national religious world, but a real deep universalism that is focused on what benefit we bring to the rest of humanity, how the world could be a better place as a result of us coming back to life. And, and ultimately we need to become a camp that is the full expression of all three values, the Torah, Jewish national consciousness, and our universal mission in history. And I think that's what needs to happen, and that can only happen through kind of merging the universalist camp in its fullness into the already united national religious camp in a way that leads to nobody being watered down, none of the values being watered down, but all three main values being fully expressed. Wow. And do you think that also has to do with us becoming more united as a nation ourselves? Like in order to reach that universalist part, the last piece of the puzzle, does that have to come from us uniting as Am Israel? Does it require it? I mean, first of all, we are united, meaning Israel is like really deeply united deep down, but externally, we're always fighting with each other because it's also part of our national culture. And and that fighting, that friction also propels us forward. Meaning I would say that just like Zionism had several ideological tendencies, right? There was cultural Zionism and religious Zionism and revisionist Zionism and labor Zionism, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think Hebrew universalism can also have several tendencies. And really one of the, the goals, one of the big projects of the vision movement is to train and empower young Jews to be able to formulate for themselves like their own versions of Hebrew universalism, like their own uniquely post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology that aspires to protect Zionism's positive accomplishments while at the same time cleaning up its mess and addressing its flaws. And I think that there should be space for there to be many expressions of Hebrew universalism, which might be in competition with each other, which might have a lot of friction, but that's okay because that friction can help propel us forward. Just like the friction that existed between the various Zionist tendencies also drove us forward a hundred years ago. Right. Can you give examples of different um, expressions of Hebrew universalism, just like Zionism has religious Zionism and political Zionism. Can you give examples for that with Hebrew universalism? Well, I can't give any real concrete examples because this is a new idea, meaning this okay. is the idea that we're bringing to the table, saying we need to stop being Zionists, meaning we need to stop. Um, the goal today is not to be a student of Herzl, it's to be the new Herzl meaning we need yeah. new theorists and new thinkers and new leaders who are going to be able to define what the goals of Jewish history are now. What are the goals of Jewish liberation after Zionism? Like now that we're home, now that we have a state, now that we feel secure, now that we have power again for the first time in thousands of years, we have to decide first of all what, what that state looks like, meaning we also have a lot of, you know, a lot of the internal friction is over how we treat the other or um, you know, or what role our particularist identity and values play in society. Like, for example, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember in Yom Yerushalayim, member of Knesset, Betzalel Smotrich, got up at Merkazarav, Yeshivat Merkazarav, and uh, started talking about returning Torah to Israel's legal system. And a lot of people got scared, because when people hear that, 
the first thing they assume is uh, he wants to turn this into a Jewish Iran or a giant Haredi community. Yeah. But but if we really have the conversation, I don't think that's where we're going. Meaning for me, like for example, right now we're in a Shemitah year and uh, we've reduced Shemitah to being all about agriculture. What vegetables we buy, what fruits we eat, you know, as opposed to also focusing on Shemitah's socioeconomic dimensions, right? What about wiping out people's debts? Meaning you can make the state more Jewish and more in line with our Torah by wiping out everybody's debt every seven years. I don't think anyone would complain about that. Right, because when we talk about the Jewishness of the state, uh, again, because there is a friction in Israeli society and the way the the way the westernized camp and remember israel's westernized ruling class does control the media does control academia does control the security forces for the most part does have the dominant voice in israeli society even if they're the minority of the population and they're constantly framing this conversation about the jewishness of the state as something uh, archaic uh, backwards anti-democratic something people should be afraid of and maybe they're afraid of it because one of the conversations that might come up is uh, should banks charge interest? You know, some of these people might own the banks. Also, what about the question of selling weapons to human rights violators? Meaning that is definitely a betrayal of Jewish values and Jewish identity to sell weapons to human rights violators. Yet Israel's arms industry is selling a lot of weapons to a lot of bad people right now. And maybe if we had a public debate, a real public debate, not like the public debate wouldn't be, are we going to force people to observe all the laws of Shabbat? That's never going to be the debate. The debate will be, should our economy, should our banking system, should our industries, should this be organized and structured according to the identity and values of our people? Meaning, should banks charge interest? Should weapons companies sell to human rights violators? Should people's debts be wiped out uh, in the Shemitah year. These are the real conversations about how a state functions, how a nation functions according to the Torah, you know, not whether or not every individual in that state is coerced to observe a certain set of laws on an individual level. Right, but getting, getting to that point of having the conversation in the first place is very important. Right, so I would personally say that a post-colonial conversation is a concrete expression of the transition between Zionism to Hebrew universalism, right? Mm -hmm. We need to really think about the aspects of our culture and our identity that were changed in the exile, are right. uh, changed as a result of, specifically as a result of external coercion. Uh, you know, we should be aware how these things were changed, and then we can have a discussion of what we want to change back or what we don't want to change back. Right. I, you know what? Let me put it this way, in our Tanakh and in our history, when we first established a kingdom here, thousands of years ago, the first three kings of Israel were Shaul, David, and Shlomo. And I think that Shaul, David, and Shlomo actually represent three stages in our national development here now. Right, okay. We can say that Shaul represents Zionism, okay? Shaul was a leader who was primarily focused on the material well-being of Israel. Our unity, our ability to defend ourselves, our economy, 
just being a strong, secure nation with the ability to defend ourselves from external threats, right? That was Shaul. That is essentially Zionism. Okay. Now, David represents a higher stage in our development. And I think that this force of David or the stage of David is best expressed by Israel's national religious community. Um, those who vote for people like Bezalel Smotrich. David was a great warrior, right? Like uh, most of our uh, most of our combat officers in the field today are coming from like the national religious community. Like these are great warriors who are willing to sacrifice their lives for the mission of the Jewish people. That's very much David. David is focused on what's different about us, not to be a normal nation, but to be something exceptional, to be something that's different. Uh, you know, also he wants to build a temple, but he can't build a temple. Meaning, even though the national religious force that might be expressed by David is a higher stage from Zionism, it's not enough. We ultimately need to transition to the Shlomo stage. Shlomo is the stage of Hebrew universalism, the stage of Israel already being strong and, and even taking our own strength and security for granted at this point and focusing on what we have to give to the rest of the world. How is the world going to be a better place as a result of Israel being in it and playing a central role? And it's only at the Shlomo stage that you can see a temple being built. Whether you want to understand that temple to be literal, like a literal building in a specific place, or allegorical. Mm -hmm. but, but you can only build the temple when you're at the Hebrew universalism stage, not at the Zionist stage and not even at the national religious stage. Interesting. Wow. Um, one question I have is why why do we use the word Hebrew universalism? Why is it not Jewish universalism, Israeli universalism? Why why do we use the word Hebrew? So you don't have to. We call it Hebrew universalism at Vision, but people can call it whatever they want. Okay. What's important, whatever you want to call it, what's important is to be able to comprehend, to conceptualize that there is a stage of Jewish liberation that comes after Zionism that's made possible by the conditions created by Zionism success, but that will be focused not on just narrow Jewish particularism or narrow Jewish nationalism, but really a much broader focus on, first of all, resolving the contradictions within Israeli society and focusing on what our main gifts are to the rest of humanity. You know, every time the Jewish people have had power in history, we've benefited human civilization. Like even the concept of a weekend was something that the children of Israel introduced to humanity. So now that we've come back to our land, now that we have power again for the first time in 2000 years, we should be focused on what we have to give. What do we have left to give to humanity? And I think one of the problems with Zionism today is that it's focused on what we share in common with the nations, specifically the dominant civilization, right? Like Western civilization. So I'd say that within Israeli society today, what we can call Zionism or Neo-Zionism is really just trying to make Israel an Am Amim, a nation like other nations, like to be uh, another flag of the UN, you know, like I said earlier, and obviously like to focus on, you know, our security and our economy and all of that, iron domes, high tech, you know, I'm not saying this stuff is all wrong, but I'm saying it has to be placed next to other values 
so, so I think that, that Zionism has this focus on what we share in common with other civilizations. And by by focusing on what we share in common with other civilizations, like, for example, even if you want to uh, use a term like Judeo-Christian values, which I have a problem with, but let's say you want to use that term, um, at best, it's saying that the Jewish people contributed something, right, to the Christian world, right, to, to Western civilization. But now... It has that, meaning for us to focus, for Israel today, for the Jewish people today, to focus on what we share in common with the Western world and on Judeo-Christian values, what we're doing is preventing ourselves from unpacking the other parts of our identity that we don't share with Western civilization. And that's really unfortunate because that's the part uh, where we're going to find the new things to contribute. Meaning whatever new contributions Israel has to make to humanity will be found specifically in the parts of our identity that we don't share in common. Um, I think we should just like define Hebrew universalism in a more like concise, like, because I don't think we really defined it. I would say that Hebrew universalism is the stage of Jewish liberation that comes after Zionism. And unlike Zionism, which is focused on the material well-being of the Jewish people, on the material liberation of the Jewish people, Hebrew universalism must be focused on what Israel has to offer the world, the rest of humanity, once we experience material liberation, once we're already strong enough to shift our focus outward. Okay. And again, Hebrew universalism can have several different ideological tendencies. There should be space for a lot of different forms of Hebrew universalism, um, and they can be in competition with one another. And as a result of that competition, they could propel one another forward and, and propel all of us forward. Wow, this has been an incredible conversation. I feel like I've gotten a much better sense of what Hebrew universalism really means. Um, so thank you, Rabbi Huda, for clarifying and for discussing. Yeah, happy to do it. It's important. For sure. This is Rina Bat Eliyahu with Rav Yehuda HaKohen, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you'd like to find the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 76. 